Decoding Future Leadership is an audiovisual podcast breaking open the capabilities, technologies, growth strategies, and mental fitness required to lead our future working world. A collaboration between PeopleStrong, the customer's choice for HR tech across Asia Pacific, and Fisher Leadership, each episode addresses the challenges of a hybrid workforce with a blend of human capability and HR technology solutions. Let's get into this week's episode. Hello, my name is David Bowering. I'm from uh, Fisher Leadership. It's my pleasure to welcome today's guest to our Decoding the Future Leadership podcast, uh, Lisa Anise. Uh, Lisa is the CEO of Diversity Council of Australia. It's a pleasure to meet you, Lisa. That's nice to be here. Thank you. That's great. Uh, Lisa, you're well known for leading a, a really broad array of, of uh, both groundbreaking and evidence-based research uh, I'd like to start, uh, I've, I've heard you speak uh, previously about a sense of fairness and equality always being a part of you uh, and a, a part of your background. I'm interested in digging a little bit deeper into this and, and what do you attribute this to in your early experiences? Uh, I mean, that's a really hard question to answer because... You can have individuals who grow up in similar circumstances and some people are motivated um, to, you know, pursue life in one direction and other people in a different direction. I mean, it's probably true to say I grew up the daughter of post-war migrant parents and we were ethnically diverse from the community in which I grew up in. Um, and it was a very, very, um, a, a very, you know, white Anglo-Celtic um, surfing community that I kind of grew up in, and we were different. Um, and I, and that was, I mean, I experienced, you know, that kind of exclusion as a child, and that always pointing out of. Um, me being different, you know, getting questions like, well, where are you from? With the obvious implication being that I'm not from here. Yeah, fascinating. It's, it's interesting. Um, as you, as you say, a, a lot of people have this experience growing up in the, in the, the seventies and eighties where not much was known about, uh, diversity and inclusion as a social concept. Uh, and people respond in different ways to that environment. I think, though, that the only way that you can work in this space effectively is to have a positive attitude and be hopeful for the future. Because if you're not hopeful for the future and that we can move towards a place where we have inclusive communities, representative governments, um, and you know, engaged workforces where all kinds of people can build their potential, um, you, you might as well go home. You, you would only react to it. I think you've got to have that optimism, that hope that we can be better, especially at the moment in the face of a regression on in some human rights spaces, um, globally that is, um, and you've got to recognise that sometimes um, progress goes backwards before it continues to go forward. There's certainly a concerted push against um, progressive policies and inclusionary practices in some parts of the world, especially in the gender space. And I think um, you've got to just be hopeful that, you know, moving towards the future, we can do better. And as the CEO yourself of Diversity um, Council Australia, it must be challenging at times to uh, shift your focus from what's in the immediate term, you know, what, what's what's present day uh, and, and real for the workplace and, and the society now versus what's, you know, zooming back a bit and looking at the long-term trends and finding some encouragement in, in what that looks like, as you say, at a, at, a, at a global level. How do you as a leader manage that zooming in and zooming out of, of the perspectives that you, you need to hold? Uh, see, my view on what needs to be done is unchanged um, and has been unchanged for decades. And I think one of the key things that you have to do if you want to create change is to try not to get distracted by, um, 
you know, popular trends um, because they crop up all the time and they may or may not be significant and they may or may not be um, things that you need to engage with. I mean, certainly the current global conversation around racial justice, that's important and um, I think that that's received, that's been elevated, so that's fantastic. But, But working in the workforce space, there are always different sort of trends and popular things that crop up from time to time. Everyone becomes obsessed with unconscious bias training, for example. Then everyone becomes obsessed with having conversations around privilege. Then everyone becomes obsessed with whatever the next – and does engaging in these conversations, does it actually create change? That's that's the question I want to answer because for me the end goals are the same. The end goals are that we should have um, equity – um, of opportunity amongst all citizens of any nation state to engage in the workforce, to be an active carer um, at home, to have economic prosperity, to live a life free from harassment, discrimination and violence, um, to be able to exist as you are authentically in the world without fear of um, being shamed and degraded just for being who you are. Um, and the responsibilities that go along with that. So I think keeping your eye on that's the end goal. Sometimes what you have to do is critically analyse trends and popular things that happen and see, well, is this something I need to pay attention to? Is this going to make a difference to achieving that end goal? Because, for example, unconscious bias training, and we do unconscious bias awareness at DCA, But there's actually no evidence to suggest that um, it's going to create anything significant in the way of change in terms of outcomes in a workplace. And yet organisations spend enormous amounts of money on that. And that's money and resources that they now don't have to focus on stuff that could make a difference. So I think it's important to analyse and assess popular trends and try and be quite critical um, and analytical about them because And this is actually a really interesting thing because in the space where I work at, a lot of well-meaning people spend a lot of time and energy um, focused on activities that don't create any change. And so you've got to um, take that evidence perspective and have a look at is it worthwhile engaging in this and have your eye always on the the long term. I'm interested in the role that technology plays in this space that you talk about and and social media is part of this and i'm interested in your thoughts on the on the the leadership challenge for you know leaders of organizations who are having to you know work through almost you know too much too many data points and too many opinions uh and um that might as you say distract them from what actually creates value in, in the workplace and in the in the broader community how do you what are the what are the capabilities that are important for leaders of business um, nowadays in order to really make a meaningful impact on inclusion in the workplace well I- a leader, and you don't have to be a leader in an organisation. You could just be an ordinary um, participant of that workplace, but it requires the same kinds of skills. You need to be open. You need to have a growth mindset about change. Um, you need to be prepared for change and be willing to take a risk on it. Um, you need to understand why diversity and inclusion matters um, because And you need to understand that in business terms. It's not enough just to have a moral, um, just have your heart in the right place. You need to understand why this needs to be a conversation for organisations and why um, you can do better as an organisation, you can be a more effective organisation if you do um, tap into your diversity and become more inclusive of diverse groups. Um, And then... You need to be the kind of leader that is then able to make diverse teams effective. And that means um, 
having not just a growth mindset around that, but having a focus on genuine inclusion. And genuine inclusion is about much more than representation. Um, it's around understanding your priority areas and understanding um, what are the ways in which you make those diverse groups included in a workforce because if you do, you will benefit um, from a, a productivity perspective, from a, an engagement and loyalty perspective, from an um, innovation perspective and you'll reduce your risk as an organisation. Um, but how you get there is a process. So just being diverse is not enough. It's how to make that mix of people work. And and at DCA we have a definition for diversity, but we have a definition for inclusion. And you mentioned in your opening remarks about our inclusion index. And in our inclusion index, we actually are able to empirically measure how inclusive an organisation is and um and what that then means for their effectiveness. So we measure inclusion in terms of, um, I mean, inclusion for us means that the organisation is respectful. Um, it means that the organisation is uh, a, a, a place where people feel humanly connected to one another, so that sense of belonging. Um, it needs to be a place where people have opportunities for progress or advancing, depending on the size of your workplace, of course, and an, an organisation where individuals have jobs that are designed effectively so that what they do adds value and matters. And so it's not just about um, giving people, you know, a belonging, a sense of belonging. It's not just about having a women's group in the workplace. It's mm. about making sure the job they have is meaningful. If they've gone on parental leave, they've returned back, they, they, don't, they don't just fall off the career trajectory, um, mm. that there's some kind of way that you're tapping into their talent. All those things need to be in place for the workplace to measure as an inclusive workplace. And only then will it get the benefits of being more innovative, um, enabling people to give discretionary effort um, and having more effective decision-making. I think what I like about those outcomes from your Inclusion at Work Index uh, findings is they're incredibly sensible. You know, these just make good business sense. Uh, and and in, a, in a space where organisations are dealing with changing environments, changing market conditions, uh, changing workforce uh, labour shortages. And I've got some, some data points here that um, around mental health and workers in inclusive teams are, are, are four times less likely to feel um, uh, their work has a negative impact on their mental health, 11 times more likely to be seen as effective and and. 10 times more likely to be um, innovative in how they approach uh, challenge in the workplace. That all sort of adds up to me to be around uh, psychological safety and, and accessibility into decision-making for the, for the business. Interested in, in um, your, your reflections on, on, on that nest of, of, of elements and how it relates to the retention of talent. Because... Individuals in a workplace shouldn't be in an environment that is harmful to them. And so your mental health and well-being um, should be as important as, you know, employers' obligations around the physical workspace being a, a space that minimises hazards. Now, what that looks like is harder to understand because workplaces can be, you know, they can be places where there is stress. There can be places where there is tension, sometimes conflict. Um, is all of that unhealthy? Not necessarily. But it's about ensuring as an organisation you are not um, enabling a culture that makes people mentally unwell. And so, I mean, that's taken sometimes to mean that people should be operating always in a state of feeling amazing at work and that's just not realistic sometimes because sometimes work you know you can be under pressure you can be un having to meet a deadline it's about what's reasonable mm. from a workplace perspective and um well what's interesting is what i'm seeing some organizations trying to navigate when you out yourself as a workplace that's focused on diversity and inclusion and um psychological safety 
then what you're also signaling to your employees is that there's a higher bar at this workplace. And then what you have to navigate um, is how people interpret that. And I think that that's really interesting and that's actually quite a hard thing to be able to do. So the idea that um, someone should come to work and never be intellectually challenged or if someone's unable to receive constructive feedback because they find it upsetting, I mean, clearly that is unreasonable. I mean, so we have to, when we say psychological safety, we have to say that within the parameters of, you know, reasonable day-to-day management because um, sometimes managers have to give difficult feedback to people. The key is do you do it respectfully? Do you do it while preserving the individual's integrity or are you a bully when you do it? And so it's not the giving of the feedback that's the issue, it's the manner in which that's done. And so that's where I – and it's really hard to do that kind of stuff, you know, and if you have two people, say, in your team who are diametrically opposed in terms of their relationship to each other – and it's causing stress for both of them, they will want very different resolutions from that um, interaction. And so what you have to focus on is, um, you know, behaviours and processes that are reasonable and acceptable to happen in the workplace context as opposed to eliminating anything that might be potentially Um, stressful or potentially challenging or complex because life is challenging and complex and life can be really stressful. Workplaces can be challenging and complex and can be stressful um, and we cannot eliminate everything. What What we can do is make sure that we do everything we can to regard the dignity of our colleagues and all the individuals in our environment. And that's what we mean. So um, it's less black and white than physical safety. And and you raise an interesting point there about you know, at the moment of tension. So I think one of the interesting things is that most reasonable people will say respect and dignity and let's let's treat everyone with those tenements um, is, is reasonable and, and, you know, um, uncomplicated to to display until the, the, there is pressure and challenge and and uh, you know the heat's turned up um, and it's at those moments where definitions of respect versus what's on the table you know the stakes of the business come into play and so I think that's mm-hmm. where the complexity sort of mm-hmm. comes in and you know I, you, what you said before about leaders being mindful about those moments, about recognising when the temperature is raised and having the presence of mind to go, okay, here's a risk, a moment of risk mm. where I've got to be mindful of, of those boundaries. Mm. Absolutely. And I think that um, you have an obligation to support staff and to ensure that work doesn't contribute to ill health in an unreasonable way. Obviously, work should never make people sick, um, but that individuals all have different points of resistance yeah. and, and people have um, varying degrees of resilience and some people are really Teflon and some people are really, really sensitive and experience things more intensely than others and that's hard to know. Yeah, that's a that's a really good point. Being able to recognise where people's uh, tension points are for themselves, mm. uh, as as well as for other people, the other people in the room, and and how are they experiencing the the interaction? Yeah. Uh, one person might think it, it's we're still within the bounds of um, respect and reasonableness. Yeah, and there might be a different experience from the other side of the room. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Interesting. I'd like to, to shift gears in, in terms of the, the most, um, you know, the last two years would be remiss of me not to, to uh, pull out the impacts of, of COVID. Uh, and one of the things that we've seen is, is that organisations needed to and, and did operationalise technology at a, at a rapid rate in order to respond 
to the, the, the pressures that the global pandemic brought upon. And technology, as we have said, can be a two-edged sword. You know, it can be used both as a as a as a positive means of of engagement and communication, and there's there's a negative shadow element to that. Interested in your thoughts on how organisations can better utilise technology moving forward to help with inclusion in the workplace? Well, technology is a real enabler. Um, of workplace participation um, because it enables flexi- flexibility in in the place where you work, and certainly we saw mass a mass move to um, remote working due to COVID. Um, but also in terms of the time you can work and the your access to um, information and your ability to like you've got more resources at your fingertips now than we've ever had before. But it can also be a terrible a terrible curse at the same time. It can mean um, you never switch off from work. It can mean your relation if you're relying on technology to interact with people all the time, those interactions may not be as rich as they could be, and so therefore you won't build as you won't build team cohesion in a way that you could, you don't get incidental collaboration that you do in a physical space, for example. So whilst technology affords people a lot of opportunities, you've got to be mindful of what the limitations are and also what are the problems that um, technology can create. And so, for example, if we think about the impact of COVID on and how it's enabled all of this remote working, which has been great, um, but there is a place for people coming together and the, our model of inclusion um, includes the quadrant of connection, human connection. And even the most um, introverted of people benefits from, you know, coming together in, in a real place in situ and connecting with other people. And so the question then becomes not how does technology enable work, but how do we structure our job? So how do we design work so that we enable the best, the, mo- the best opportunity for the greatest um, inclusion possible? And for some people, that will be a hybrid working model. For some people, it will be return to the office. Um, some people are able to do it even physically um, in remote locations. And indeed, it has to be that way in some workforces. If you're the only person in, you know, in the Sydney office and the rest of your team works in Melbourne, then you have no choice. Um, so there are things that you can do, but it's about the job design. Um, and then ultimately comes down to the capability of the leader and the manager and how they set the tone mm. um, and and what do you artificially create in that kind of environment which can contribute to that um, connection piece because it's really you- vital. It's really important. And I think workplaces are struggling to get people back into the office. And... Um, I mean, we had our, just at DCA, we've obviously not been together for a long time, but we had a couple of weeks ago our first um, in-office event where we all came together for a team day. And when I say we all, we couldn't all, only the people who could travel to Sydney and and could meet the vaccination requirements um, could do it. So it was not all of us, it was half the team, but it was amazing to all be to be together, and I think that I just came away from that convinced that um, we've got to have some kind of hybrid model for us as an organisation because, you know, the work we do at DCA can be really stressful mm. um, because we're trying to create change, and when you're whenever you're trying to create change in a space that's challenging. Um, it can take its toll on individuals and one of the ways you build individual resilience is through human contact, human interaction and building those connections and so that's really, that's that's got to be important, it's got to be a focus area for us as an organisation and for others. 
This podcast is created by Fisher Leadership and proudly sponsored by PeopleStrong. Here's a message from PeopleStrong CEO, Sandeep Chowdhury. We indeed are living in the era of talent economy. The talent economy fundamentally for us means looking at the world of work, workplace and workforce very differently than what we've essentially experienced and known in the pre-pandemic world. We fundamentally believe that experience, collaboration and data will actually differentiate the best from the rest. With that ambition, People Strong has brought the first talent operating system to enterprises to essentially be able to personalize the employee journey right from the hiring into the learning performance and the career management stage of every employee. We've done that with massive amount of AI and ML that will bring in the right decisions for an employee and for the enterprises to essentially take the biggest advantage of the crisis that we're just coming out of. It's a, it's, it's a great example of, of, I think, one of the tension points that, that leaders I see struggling with is, um, and your example there of, of your own experience with DCA, you know, looks at the, the energy that's created from uh, a physical sense of belonging to the organization, uh, while at the same time saying, not everybody could be there. And, and so in a sense, that conflicts with the, the definition of inclusion, uh, you know, in terms of how does everyone have access? And I, and I wonder um, how or what advice might you have for leaders contemplating this, this, this binary uh, question of how do I include everyone while at the same time that, that physical ne- connection is, is just not always possible? I think it's important not to be binary about it um, because even if you can't have an absolute positive outcome for every individual, even if you can just have an impact on some or half or three quarters, you should still go ahead with it. And I know that sounds really harsh because it means some people are missing out um, but if you're waiting for the perfect to happen, you'll be waiting forever. And that's in everything. I mean, it's in working in the DNI space, sometimes you have to just go with a little bit less worse than what it previously was because aiming for perfection is a pipe dream. Um, in, it's so far off. No organisation's achieved it. Mm. And so if you're saying, well, unless it's 100% perfect, we're not going to do it, I think, and, and people are like, there are people, activists in this space who very much are that way. They're very pure, they've got very Puritan ideas about um, anything less than this is a failure mm. and and I don't agree with that. Um, and I think that the evidence shows that change in this space is incremental and you create change by changing individuals Systems change because individuals change. So even if you can only influence 50% of the people in the system, that's better than influencing 0%. So mm. I just think that the operating in the binary, I, 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 I'm not, I don't subscribe to that because I think you'll be waiting forever in a day. And then whose definition of perfect are you going off? You know, it's um, because if you ask 100 people, and these are the challenges of working in DNI, what the solution is, you'll get 100 different responses and so you'll invariably disappoint some people. So you might as well just get on with it um, and try and do a little bit and try and move forward even if it's with a smaller group of people because that's still progress. Yeah, yeah. I think that's that's really useful advice and, and one of the, you know, it, it's, it challenges some of the social, uh, the messages through social media about, uh, which can get quite emotional, um, and, and, you know, within organisations and also within communities about, you know, what can be perceived as a, as a high standard of, of what inclusion looks like. So, And the fact that in that type of scenario that people are reduced to their worst day it's a it's such a pessimistic view of humanity mm. 
and it's so judgmental. And it's not to say if people do terrible things, then they should be held to account for doing terrible things. But having the wrong opinion um, is not set in stone. I mean, the wrong opinion, A, according to who? I mean, obviously, I, I want people to be diverse and inclusive and to value that. But I wouldn't um, cancel someone um, because they didn't agree with me. And I think that what happens if you stop talking to people who don't share your views or because you perceive them as being less, um, as, as, as letting you down, you will miss every opportunity to create positive change. And everyone is better than their worst day at work. Everybody is better than the worst mistake and worst decision that, that they've ever made. Um, and people have the capacity to change. And if you remove that opportunity for people to learn and grow, then um, you will never create change in this space. And then you know what? It's like people in glass houses. All of us make mistakes. None of us have perfect days every day. And all of us can look back on our attitudes historically and think, oh, now with new information, I would recalibrate that. You can't hold individual. I mean, with the exception of anything that's criminal, and of mm-hmm. course, breaching things like the Sex Discrimination Act and harassing people. I mean, I'm not. I'm talking about grey areas. You've got to be able to um, bring people along a journey, and um, not use today's morality to judge behaviour that might have happened you know, a generation ago, 10 years ago, five years ago, as long as people need to be moving in the right direction and you miss those opportunities. Now, what I'm saying, there'll be people who listen to this podcast who probably think, well, I don't agree with that. Um, and all I can say to people who have such a pessimistic view of human by human um, behaviour is that you're working in, if you want to work in the change space, then you've got to hold on to the idea that everybody can change. And for people to change, you've got to engage with them because um, unless you are, yeah, you've got to engage with them and you've got to bring them along the journey. That's the only way forward. I think the the, the other element of, of uh, that comes into play around change is, as you say, change is not a linear experience changes a couple of forward steps a couple of backward steps uh when you look at it um within a within a particular time frame uh and for leaders for for anyone to have the confidence to move through the process and as you say um ride the waves and and be okay with the the dips uh as as they take place as long as the trajectory broadly is is heading in the right direction yeah, I agree, absolutely agree. And I think that sometimes it means that you should not be, um, you should always, that's that's why the long-term and the big picture, we started the conversation with the long-term and the big picture, that's always got to be top of mind. Yeah. yeah. Because if you're focusing on um, the everyday and what today's morality and someone steps a toe out of line and then... <laughs> They can never be redeemed. It's um, it's just you might as well give up and go home. I'm in the business of trying to make things better, and to do that, I've seen people um, capable of extraordinary change who have come from places where, if they'd been written off um, in those early days, because everyone is a culmination of their experiences. And if you if your eyes haven't been open to what it's like to walk a day in someone else's shoes. And you don't have that, you've either not acquired that knowledge intellectually or through a human experience. I think it's I think it's unfair. Where I think we have the right to be judgmental is when people in the face of all the available information, um, when they've been part when they've participated in the conversation, when they've had the opportunity to understand how the world could be better, and then they self-select out of that, mm-hmm. then I think you can say, well, I think that's bigoted, I think that's narrow, that's small-minded. Um, but you know, sometimes 
it's um, important to to recognise that because people like me, for example, I'm immersed in this all the time. Most people who are doing other kinds of jobs, they're not. And Mm. so therefore you can't expect them to be a world practice expert, a leading expert on, you know, um, feminist principles in the corporate space. What you can expect to do is to say, hey, do you realise that if by not calling out harassing behaviours and you've promoted someone who's sort of turned a blind eye to this kind of stuff, that's creating a culture in your organisation that says this sort of behaviour is okay. If then they go, oh, well, it is okay, then write them off. But if that you're able to bring them along, that's the important thing that um, I think. I'm interested, you know, as, as you're talking, you, you, you know, you're, you're, you're in the, the – deep of this topic around diversity and inclusion. Uh, and you've got, um, you know, through your research capabilities, a lot of evidence to uh, support the trends that are happening in the in the emerging workforce, workforce space. What surprises you, Lisa, in terms of, you know, what are the things that are cropping up that you, you didn't expect or you didn't anticipate that, um, you know, either positively or, or negatively have, have surprised you? That's a good question because you're asking me about what surprises me and even though I suppose I'm always learning um, and obviously I've got personal experiences in some diversity inclusion areas but not in others and so, you know, I, I, I'm always learning and you've always got to take the view that someone know something that you don't and you need to be have an open mind in the face of new information and be prepared to revise your current views. I mean, if you'd asked me when I started off in this career what I thought a utopia would have looked like, it would have been really different to what I think now. Tell me about that. Tell me tell me what shifted in and because you, you talked a little bit earlier on in our conversation about you know, a picture of what the, the future workplace looks like, which 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 I really um, liked and relate to. Interested in how that shifted over time. Because I think I took for granted when I was younger that equality was the outcome that we should be pursuing. And what I mean by that was I started off working in this space focused on gender diversity and thinking that, um, agenda um, success would happen when 50% of the boardrooms are populated by women, 50% of parliaments populated by women, um, and where women have access to all of the opportunities that men have access to. And I have shifted that view um, because I actually think that that end view is wrong. Um, I'm. It's about the. It's like the difference between being a um, an equality feminist and a liberation feminist. They're very different outcomes. The equality feminist says, "I want fifty percent of what men have." The liberation feminist says, "I actually think the system doesn't work, and what I want is the freedom for women." to live the full lives that they want to live and for men as well. Um, And I want them to be liberated from the idea in the 70s, the idea was liberated from the kitchen, liberated from domestic drudgery. Um, Liberation to me now looks like um, being a slave to your workplace, Um, men not being able to be active carers of their children. They're being trapped within the confines of, you know, what is socially constructed in terms of the expectations of your gender. Those are the things I want to break away from. Um, And that's a very different um, game than because the game should be that we want opportunity for everyone so that everyone can make their choices. Mm. And that might mean that the outcome is not what people initially anticipate. Mm. Fascinating. And, you know, I always, when I think about, you know, the, the objective of having 50% representation in, in management or in boards or, or uh, those sorts of things, I think about, well, 
if we get to, you know, if and when we get to that level, what do we do? Do we sort of dust our hands and pat each other on the back and say, we've done it? And, you know, I, I think that's that's not the case. I think uh, what we're looking to do is is create a, a very different experience in the workplace yep. and in the, in the community mm-hmm. for, for yep. everyone. And I think limiting to a 50% uh, representation goal uh, in a sense, it's a, a site's reasonably low. Yeah, and it also means that it's a numbers game and it's not re- – I mean, look, the numbers are important because, you know, obviously we do want gender representative um, decision-making bodies in corporations, in government, um, in any other kind of institution or anywhere where – where power is distributed because that's good for not just the individuals themselves but it leads to better decision-making for everybody. Um, so that's certainly a, a, an important aspiration. But it's the why is really important. And so, for example, one of the boards that I sit on is an organisation called Women for Election Australia and that is the, the idea that we need to have a gender-equal um, parliament and what it shows, what the research shows is that if you have gender, gender equal, the more gender equal a parliament is, and it doesn't matter what politics the women are, so whether they're progressives or conservatives, you get better policy decisions for women and children in the community. You get more support for childcare. You get better support for maternal health initiatives. You get the outcomes are great for humans on the outside. Mm. So um, for me, the numbers are important because they enable the outcomes for everybody. Not, it's not they're not the end in themselves. Mm. It's what they will enable. And a gender equal um, parliament, even with the women women don't have to be progressives, they can be conservatives, you will still get better outcomes in general, not always, um, but in general you'll still get better outcomes for citizens if you have gender equality in parliament. On the measures that are important to me, health, education, um, well-being, I mean the, the societies that have moved closest to it, so the Nordic countries that have moved closest to it, they have the highest happiness scores in the OECD. Yeah, for and all I, for all individuals in the in the community, and I think that's the critical point, and, and sometimes the point that doesn't emerge, and that there's examples around uh, in in the you know the parental leave space for um, in in the workplace that men have been a beneficiary, uh, or fathers in particular have been a beneficiary of the advances that have been made uh, in in the parental leave provisions and and conditions for for uh, employees. And so I think this sense that from a, a, a diversity inclusion activation process only supports those people in that subgroup is is a is a misnomer. It's a it's it's a myth. Yeah, there's no there's no evidence to support that. Um, and, and evidence the idea to the contrary. That this is a zero sum game. Absolutely to the contrary. Our our every every two years when we do our inclusion reports, it shows that um, if you become inclusive as an organisation, even if you only focus on initiatives to improve the number of women in leadership, you'll have better outcomes for men in the workplace. Um, and that actually. Um, men's expectations are changing. They want what was unthinkable for them. So it started off with women wanting what men have and now a lot of men are saying, well, you know what, we want those choices to be active carers at home as well without our careers suffering. And what the research shows is that um, men who ask for flexibility in order to care are amongst the most excluded people from the career trajectory. Mm. So it's it's important to recognise that um, to maximise genuine choice, we need to focus on equality for marginalised groups. And in the workplace in Australia, women f- are one of those groups that have traditionally been excluded from um, from power um, on a whole bunch of measures. There's a pay gap. Yeah, women experience harassment and violence in great bigger numbers in workplaces. So it's really important to focus on that. But the benefits aren't just for the women; they're for for everybody. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Lisa, just as a, as a final question, uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on how how we 
the community can can maintain that that human elements of of the individual connection as as you mentioned with technology increasing as as part of the dynamic how do we how do employees manage that sense of belonging at at a level of of humanness if that makes sense well just by i think i mean you just have to hang out together <laughs> I mean, that, that you have to hang out together. You have to have a culture of respectful communication. Um, you've got to um, design work in a way that facilitates that. Um, you have to cultivate a reward system that um, recognises particular effort that creates those sorts of behaviors so for example if you've got a really hyper competitive workspace and you've cultivated that as a culture that's really um, not effective in terms of enabling um, con human connection other than for the in-group mm -hmm. um, who are the hyper competitive people so you've got to try and create a structure in your workplace a reward structure that focuses on encouraging the kinds of behaviours that will lead to um, that connection. And you've got to design connection in a way that is inclusive. So don't just let, you know, you know. The, I remember the day, it used to be the days that the CEOs would always, you know, they'd have things like golf days and everyone, and, you know, that's great if you play golf, <laughs> um, but, and I think in more recent times I've seen people do cycling things. I think that can be great for the people who enjoy those um, sorts of activities, but you've got to design activities in a way that enables everyone to be part of it. And that means you have to think of things across cultural lines, across health, across the disability and accessibility lines. Um, you've got to think um about things in the context of what are people's obligations outside the workplace with relation with respect to caring responsibilities so that will lead you down a path of making sure that whatever you do in terms of your engagement points it's as inclusive as it can be and um so you've got to try and artificially create that but i think we need to also do things in person together we need to have that human connection that won't be universal um but it's it's very important and and i think the other element to that is is co-creation there's, there's there's no one person or it's not the responsibility no. of the leader to say here's what we're going to do and i think that's what created the golf days and and, and cricket days in the past is is i know the boss I, I would always said, joke with I know. I always joke with my team that when we organise events and say, what should we do? I said, don't ask me. If you leave it up to me, we'll all be attending a sci-fi convention. <laughs> um, let's do something that, you know, and, and like that uh, population one in my organisation, who's going to enjoy that? So <laughs> you've got to let that be led and designed by people other than the leadership group because they will impose their blueprint. And then what that basically says is that you have to be like me to be a leader. And that's what's happened. Um, and it hasn't been done consciously. So you've got to broaden that out a bit. And just and then go through a checkbox exercise of because even getting diverse groups of people together, you may think you work your way through accessibility and um and inclusion. Am I, you know, do I have in the same way that if you're booking a restaurant for a bunch of friends, you'd consider everyone's dietary requirements. Um, you've got to do that as well. Um, but it's not just about those one-off events. It's about the everyday. How do you come together regularly? Um, how do people – how do you check in with people to see how they're doing? Um, do you do pulse surveys? Do you have other ways of checking in? Um, and then what are the behaviours you tolerate? in your workplace because if you turn a blind eye, I mean, I think one of the best policies I ever heard, I think Netflix and Atlassian have a policy called a um, nose, what's it called? It's a zero, no brilliant jerks, they call it, no brilliant jerks. So if you're a rainmaker but you behave badly, 
that's not on. And I think too many times people think this person's a superstar, so I'm just going to turn a blind eye to the fact that they're also a bully. Um, and that you will end up having to undo a whole lot of damage if you do that. So you need to call out that behaviour even if that person's a rainmaker because in the end they're going to cost you more money. And that is a shift. That That is an absolute mm. shift from the workplaces that I've been involved with mm. uh, and, 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 you know, growing up through the, the 80s and 90s where, where rainmakers were the unicorns. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, now emerging out of, out of the current climate, you know, what, what employers are looking for in terms of unicorns is, is, is far more accessible, uh, far mm. more inclusive and, and broader, more, uh, more human capabilities and uh, the ability to, to collaborate across uh, different teams and functions uh, in order to, to be productive for their workplace. Because ultimately organisations are only systems of people. And so being good with people is the most important thing um, in any organisation. Exactly, exactly. Lisa, thank you so much for your time today. Great to discuss these things. I think, uh, you know, really excited by the, the pragmatic and, and practical approach that you take uh, to the, the questions about diversity and inclusion uh, and also the 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 changing nature of being able to make mistakes uh, and, and being okay with that. Uh, and I, I really like the, the, um, the, the mindset of if I'm having a bad day, but my intention and my objectives and, and who I am in, in, as a person are, are better than this. And this is what I'm going to strive to achieve. I think that's a really nice message for, for our um, employees there. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for your time. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. That's it for today's episode of Decoding Future Leadership. Thanks for listening. We'd really love to hear how your workplace is combining human capability and HR technology to redesign our hybrid working environments. Please like, comment, share and subscribe to help us create a world of difference. Brought to you by PeopleStrong and Fisher Leadership.